On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Dr. Joni Johnston about the psychology behind stalking, the stages of an obsessive ex, and how to know if you're being stalked. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everybody. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dr. Joni Johnston. How are you? I am great. I'm super excited to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you for being here with us today. And for those that do not know who you are, Dr. Joni Johnston is a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer. She is a practicing psychologist. She has worked in a medium maximum security prison for the Board of Parole for the Superior Court of San Diego and as a workplace investigator of misconduct allegations, including harassment, discrimination, and violence. You are currently evaluating mentally disordered offenders up for parole, and you provide expert testimony in criminal and civil litigation uh, as a forensic psychologist. Your website is drjoneyjohnston.com and all that information will be in our show notes and you know for for people who are uh listening we've listened to a lot of episodes in our survivor stories about stalking and today you know a big part of our discussion the main part of our discussion will be stalking the the um, psychology behind stalking, understanding stalkers in, in how this takes place. And then the, I guess the evolution and the stages of, of, of violence as well. So uh, I guess let's start off and say, what is stalking? Stalking is really a pattern of unwelcome behavior that causes fear in a reasonable person. So it's kind of a vague way of really saying it's, it is a two, two, th- two, I think two things to remember. One is this pattern. So it's a course of conduct. It's not a one-time thing. Like, you know, somebody can be harassed once, um, but when you're talking about stalking, and that's very significant because when you're looking for a legal, a legal um, you know, remedy, it's this pattern or course of conduct that the law looks for. Show us that this is not a one-time thing. This is something that's ongoing. And then the other thing that's significant is that it, it, a reasonable person, and certainly this victim, uh, their behaviors, the words, the actions are creating fear. And not only are they creating fear in that one person, but they're creating fear, um, you know, across the board in terms of their relationships oftentimes. And as far as a stalker goes, uh, what is the psychology behind stalking and what are the characteristics of a stalker? So, I mean, a stalker can really be anybody. And that's sometimes the scary thing. It can be somebody that you know. It can be somebody that you don't know. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. It can be an acquaintance. Uh, But it really is somebody whose primary goal is to exert control. 
control over that relationship and oftentimes control over that person. And that is kind of a primary motive. And the, the form it takes can be, you know, can be different, but it is this issue of control that really is a theme throughout different kinds of stalking, whether it's, again, stalking by a stranger, stalking by a, an ex or whatever, that, you know, the, the kind of the goal overall or the mission really is, um, you know, it's kind of like what we're talking about. The mission really is, you know, gaining control. And part of that gaining control oftentimes is instilling fear in the victims. And within the history of your work, um, I guess, what has been the most innocent form of stalking that people don't realize is stalking? And then as far as the... Um, the scariest cases of stalking, uh, what were, what was that type of person, uh, like, and, um, when, I guess, should you be afraid that stalking can be taken to another level? And is there a way to figure that out? Well, you know, there's a man named um, Dr. Paul Mullen who's kind of tried to slice and dice stalking cases and look at the different motives and look at the different victims and those kinds of things. And I think if you're talking about probably the most innocuous stalker would be, and well, depending how you define that, would be kind of the incompetent stalker. And, you know, this is somebody who may not be that smart, um, have some poor social skills, you know, be confused about relationships. And so they kind of distort in their minds and are just unclear about how normal relationships should evolve and how they should progress. And so therefore they're doing all these kind of odd things or inappropriate things, really believing that they want to establish, they want to establish some kind of a relationship with this person. Um, and so these stalkers, these incompetent stalkers can be very persistent. And that's the challenge in terms of not only in terms of, you know, focusing on one person, uh, over a long period of time, but they're more likely to be kind of serial stalkers. But in, from, from a dangerous standpoint, that isn't the kind of stalkers that we tend to see who as, escalate over time. So that type of stalker really doesn't understand what they're doing in a way? You know, it's kind of like, it, it, yes and no. I mean, they don't, I think, sometimes have the social skills and they're awkward sometimes and they don't put themselves in social situations. And when they are, they just don't handle them very well. So there's some, I think, awareness, but a lot of it more is just a lack of skills. And those lack of skills, I think, end up, you know, kind of permeating all of their relationships, including these relationships they are trying to have with other people. Um, and that's what we mean by incompetent stalkers. They're not incompetent in terms of they tend to stalk for a long period of time, but the motive behind that really is, um, you know, is kind of a lack of awareness or trying to make some kind of a relationship that really isn't there. And oftentimes there is this, you know, the scary part of it in terms of just the mentality of it is there's oftentimes this kind of underlying sense of like, I'm entitled to this. You know, I want this relationship with you. I'm kind of entitled to this. Look at all the things I'm doing to have this relationship with you. So, again, from a danger standpoint, this, this isn't a really high-risk group, but it is in terms of the psychological trauma that it can impart when you have somebody who's this kind of obsessive, compulsive, incompetent stalker who's focused on somebody and continues to pursue this person um, in an awkward kind of way. But again, if you're the victim, you're not sitting back, you know, really evaluating that person's social skills. You're really looking at the impact that's having on other people. So there's an incompetent stalker. Uh, I guess how many types of different stalkers are there? 
really five different kinds of stalkers that have really been identified. And you mentioned earlier, what is the most dangerous kind of stalker? And I think there's a, there's a, um, kind of category called a predatory stalker, which is exactly how it, how it sounds. You know, this is somebody who um, oftentimes stalks people, have a history of criminal behavior. Um, sometimes they'll have uh, sexual paraphilia, sadism and those kinds of things. The goal of a predatory stalker is oftentimes sexual dominance. So this is somebody who um, is a problem or scary in across a number of different settings oftentimes. And luckily, only 4% of stalkers fall into this predatory category. You know, a lot of times you'll see um, serial killers, especially sexually motivated serial killers, who you look and you see this pattern of stalking and planning and those kinds of things, um, where, the, where there really is a pretty, I guess, evil intent, if you will. Um, and again, it's, it's a relatively small group. But it certainly, what it lacks in size, it really makes up for in the danger um, that can be potentially involved. So what are the other three in between uh, the, comp- the incompetent and the predatory? So there's the incompetent, there's the intimacy, intimacy seeker, there's the rejection, um, which is kind of what, we're, what you think about. There's the um, resentful, um, you know, kind of an interesting example of that is there was a, such a bizarre situation where um, people were bidding on a house um, and they both thought they got this house or got the bid. And this one woman, her name is Kathy Rowe, um, was very invested in getting this house. And they, she found out that her house was outbid on. And this other couple had gotten this house and they moved in and this was their dream house or whatever. And I can't even begin to tell you all the bizarre things that happened. You know, I mean, ter- everything from sending invitations to a New Year's party that was non-existent posting this house for sale and then people showing up and looking at your house. I mean, you know, putting together, sending Valentine's cards to all the men in the neighborhood, you know, I mean, just stuff that we would think would just be really, really, and that's a kind of a resentful stalker. So what's the rejection stalker like? They're pretty much how it sounds. You know, it's somebody who's angry. Sometimes it, it, they aren't even angry at the person they're targeting. They have a lot of anger. They have this sense of being mistreated, either by that person in their minds or not. Um, they may just be again be an angry person that they in, they just kind of randomly pick somebody, and so that's the person that you think of when you think about this kind of um, that kind of stalker, where there's just this kind of sense of mistreatment in general from society, and then it, the way it gets targeted can depend upon a lot of different things. So what? is the intimacy stalker like? And, you know, we see that probably most dramatically when we're talking about erotomania, which I'm sure we've all heard about, which is this, you know, the kind of the celebrity, you know, the person who fixates on a celebrity. Um, I think probably one of the biggest ones is Peggy Ray. I think, was it, I know it's Margaret Ray. I can't remember. David Letterman stalker is a good example of that. And she was literally arrested eight different times. She had convinced herself that, you know, they had this relationship or they were, you know, uh, you know, soulmates or whatever. Um, and just, yeah, just absolutely just, you know, detor- everything was distorted. I mean, just had this belief that we are meant to be together. We are soulmates or whatever. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. Um, and one of the hard things about this kind of erotomania is it really becomes delusional. 
the person genuinely you know, believes that we are meant to be together or that somebody is holding us back or whatever. And that can be very scary. Yeah, so I've been writing things uh, down here and uh, kind of next to all of these words. And I've noticed that, you know, there's the word delusional, which can be, you know, any sex or gender. Um, and then with some others, it seems like um, there could be more of um, male um, male oriented ones that might be rooted in uh, hatred of of women or anger um, from growing up or just anger at society um, and taking it out maybe on on women. And that's kind of a resentful stalker, like we're talking about. Yeah. You know, that, that you don't have to, it, you know, it could be this one person that you're resentful of that represents a bunch of different things to you or success or whatever, but it can just be, you're right, that I'm, I'm angry or I'm resentful at women or, you know, this person's level of success or whatever this person represents to me or this person's attractiveness or whatever. It doesn't have to be directed at that person. That person can become a symbol for a lot of other, a lot of other things for sure. Um, I, one thing I'll just quickly add there is that when you're, talk, you're talking about gender and how that relates is we do see more women stalkers when you're talking about erotomania and these kind of delusions and those kinds of things in comparison to other kinds of stalkers. Yeah, that's what I was, uh, what I was kind of mm -hmm. getting to. With the delusional one, it seems like that can be all over the map, like as far as that goes. But the other ones have to be very high male compared to female. I, it's just my assumption. And your assumption is correctly, I mean, it's absolutely correct. I mean, we know, obviously, across the board um, that the percentage of women get stalked, who get stalked more than men is like four to one. So that's just kind of across the board. But you're right. When you start, you know, kind of segmenting it by different types of stalkers, um, you know, some you're going to find much higher um, prevalence of men. And then you're right. When we talk about like the erotomanic stalker or, um, or the, you know, the, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, the kind of, you know, delusional intimacy seeker stalker and erotomania would fall under that umbrella. You do find more women than men. And some studies show that you actually find an equal number of men and women who fall in that category. So amongst these five, I guess, what are the common characteristics throughout, uh, all of these five where we, uh, when we're talking about stalkers that people should be looking out for? I think really, it's not so much looking at like personality characteristics or traits or whatever. It's really looking at the behaviors because that is something that you see commonly, you know, kind of across the board. And, you know, there's always a danger, I think, sometimes to start analyzing that person. You know, what is this person's motive? And sometimes when you're talking about safety planning and you're, safety planning with the group, you need to look at those motivations. But I think sometimes if you're a victim, we can kind of get caught up in analyzing that person, trying to put them in a category when for our purposes in terms of safety planning, we need to focus on what are the behaviors that are scaring us? What is it about those behaviors that are scaring us? What is the context that those behaviors are occurring and the context in terms of that relationship? Because that's one of the most challenging things I think sometimes for family members, for victims, and for law enforcement is sometimes a victim will finally go to law enforcement complaining about this person slashed my tires 
or this person stealing the mail out of my mailbox. And if they haven't looked at the totality of the circumstances and put together and documented kind of this pattern, oh, yeah, the person did slash my tires. But before that, you know, all these other things were happening. And there are 50 things that I didn't go to the police about. I went to, you know, to, on the 50th time, it can be very easy for police, especially police that aren't trained in stalking, to focus on this one incident um, and miss not only the, you know, the frequency and the severity of the behavior, um, but the context. Because, you know, a lot of things can be, obviously, if, if my husband sent me flowers, I would not be threatened by that. You know, that's not something most of us are threatened about. But there are situations we can imagine where receiving flowers from somebody um, who said, the next time you receive flowers from me is going to be the day that you die. It's a whole different ballgame. So we have to be able to understand that context and convey that context if we're a victim. And for people who tell their partner, uh, I don't want to talk to you ever again, and they get flowers, uh, do you... Do you start reporting these things to the police right away so over time you have this um, paper trail for them to look at it? Like, do you just tell people right away, right after the first one, do it? Like, don't wait? I think that's such a great question, and there's so many different ways to go with that. Number one, I think when somebody does something the first time that is unwelcome to you, you need to be very clear with that alleged stalker or alleged perpetrator, you know. I don't have any interest in you romantically, and I will never have any interest in you romantically, and that's the end of it. And that is that one clear communication that you've given to that person. You're not saying, um, you know, right now I'm not ready for a relationship, or I don't think we're a good fit for each other, because all that person's going to hear is what, you know, not right now, you know, or I'm not sure. And, and that is, so you want to be as very clear as possible one time with that person. And after that, I think you do a couple of things. Number one is you cease all contact um, as much as you possibly can, period. That's it. You've communicated clearly to that person. Any communication, no matter how negative it is, it's going to be seen as kind of reinforcing that behavior. Um, you also want to document from the very beginning. You know, document, document, document. What you do with that documentation is a whole other question, which we can talk about. But you definitely want to document. You want to document what it was. You want to document who saw it, where you were, what time it happened, and specifically, too, the impact it had on you. How did it make you feel? What was threatening about that? So the context, again, the impact it had on you, any witnesses, any electronic communications, you start building a file. Um, now, the other question is, okay, when do you go to police? And that's why I always say, you know, one of the things you need to do from the very beginning is get an army of support behind you. So when do you go to the police? Do you file a restraining order? Those are, to me, your individual decisions that hopefully are going to be made about your team or with your team. It's hard for me to ever say, yes, get that restraining order, Cindy. No, don't get the restraining order, Sandra, because every situation is different. And there are some times we all know that people have had a false sense of security with, you know, restraining orders and to, you know, not live to tell the story about that. And that's one of the dangers, I think, of a, of a restraining order. Sometimes we need to have that, but sometimes it does give people a false sense of security. And some people, it enrages them, you know, that it, you know, it doesn't work. So the main thing, like I said, is just kind of arm is to really create 
an army of people around you, making sure there's a victim's advocate that's helping you, that you are talking to your friends about this, that you are talking to your families about this. If you need to at your workplace, you know, um, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it is time to look at, to go to law enforcement and, you know, start getting information about that. I mean, there's all different ways. And when you have that team together is when you can start trying to make some decisions about what is the best thing to do. But I think we don't want to jump to, okay, here's what we should do. We want to jump to, here's our team. And these are going to be team decisions. And we're going to know when we should get a restraining or we shouldn't get a restraining order. So as far as the stages of an obsessive X go, uh, where does it begin? Because we know, you know, we've just discussed here when you do go or get ready to go to uh, file a report or, or, or really start doing your documentation. But where does the, where does it begin? Where does the stages of this obsessive X begin? Well, I think a lot of times the first stage of any relationship, including what ends up turning out to be an obsessive or destructive relationship, starts with this kind of enmeshment, right, which is what we call love and, you know, the attraction and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of times we'll have this almost like an enmeshment, which is not uncommon. Again, we meet somebody, we're excited about them, um, and so, you know, we're kind of enjoying this kind of honeymoon period. And, which is, again, very normal and exciting and all those kind of things. So we don't know at that point that it's an obsessive ex or it may become that because it seems so normal. I mean, we all know how great it is to be in love. There's nothing better. It's like a drug, right? We all like that feeling. It's so exciting. I think what happens is over a period of time, it can be four months. I think a lot of times it's between four and six months. You start seeing the relationship kind of settle down into some kind of a rhythm. And so this kind of honeymoon period starts settling down and kind of going away. And this, this agitated period kind of starts. And this agitated period is when, okay, the initial romance and everything has kind of settled down with something we would expect. And, and yet what we're starting to see are some, I guess, kind of some worrisome kind of behaviors, you know, a lot of controlling behavior, a lot of isolating kind of behavior, a lot of obsessive kind of behavior, calling people, texting them, um, where are you going? What time are you going to be back? Um, you know, isolating people and those kinds of things. So you start seeing this escalation as opposed to things kind of becoming calmer and settling down. You see the opposite of that, where these relationships, this one person is starting to really, you know, try to do this, try to get more and more control over the relationship. And so it kind of becomes more agitated over time. And then with a lot of times when these, uh, you know, initial patterns that we're starting to see, if they're not effective in terms of the goal that person wants, then you enter the kind of what I call the aggressive stage. So whether it's somebody has broken up, um, you know, it's, it's things have kind of gotten to a crisis point for the most part. And that's when you start seeing this aggressive, hey, mom, it doesn't mean always mean homicidal, but it, it's a, things are, the, the ante is upping even further. And then depending upon the dynamics and, and the histories involved and those kinds of things, you can see aggressive, aggression move from verbal or psychological to even physical or sexual aggression. And that's when you have to kind of be concerned, really concerned about that. Yeah, so when stalking, you know, stalking gets to a point of being very scary, um, and people might have early on said, like, this is creepy or those kind of words might come out and then you really get to the point of like you're legitimately scared how do you besides getting a restraining order how do you protect yourself 
Is there a way? Because at this point, you're going from stalking, getting very scary, to the possibility of uh, violence. And we all know once you get to violence, the next step could be something worse. So what do you do to um, gain some sort of safety? You know, whether it be knowing that that person has a gun, gun in the house, um, and to protect your whereabouts so someone doesn't know. Because a lot of people I hear, they say, I live in this neighborhood. This is my neighborhood. Why should I have to alter my life? Because this other person is someone I'm going to run into. They should be the one that has to move. And is it a case of, in the sense of, yes, that is terrible. But I, I look at it in the same sense. I live in Toronto. And when people are, are bikers and there are people who are car drivers. And I see the bikers who are always expecting the car to yield towards them. But when you're a driver, the first thing you learn is you can't trust the other drivers on the road. And for some reason, the biker in their mindset is like, well, I have my right of way because I am the biker. And they stop paying attention to the car thinking the car will do the right thing. But the car, you can't trust the car. You know, you, you have to um, be as safe as possible. And sometimes that is yielding to the situation of what is going on. So how do you, what do you say to those people that want to take their power back? But sometimes that's not, you know, and you understand why they want to. And of course you do, but there's some situations where it's just not safe to, what do you say to them and that whole entire process? I think it's so unfair, right? I mean, that's what, I mean, when we're talking, that is what kind of keeps coming up for me. And I think it does to a lot of people who are victims. And that is, it's so unfair. Why, why are, why are, am I being asked to do all this stuff? You know, why am I having to vary my routine every day? Um, you know, I'm trying to think, I mean, the, all the different things, you know, um, hiding things, um, having self safety plans, giving signals to your workplace to look out and see if your face is there or whatever. It's so unfair. It's so unfair because it's, I mean, it's like, why, you know, anybody who's a victim, why are we having to bend over backwards for the most part in a situation? But th that is the reality. It really is the reality in terms of, you know, I wish there was a magic words that we could say. Um, or, you know, or if we said the right thing or we did this right thing there, we would guarantee that everybody would be safe. And yet that's not the case. We can do risk assessments, but there is no guarantee that we're going to be safe. And so unfortunately, a lot of times the onus is on us as survivors to do those things or as victims to do those things. Again, whether that is varying your routine, uh, whether that's, you know, again, talking to so many people, whether that's it, you know, being embarrassed in the workplace that you feel like, you know, you have to give a picture to your office or whatever. I mean, all those things are embarrassing. Uh, they're, they're burdensome and there's all those things, um, you know, but the reality is when we have to look at, when we have to look at these kind of things, we don't really know how to better handle them. I mean, hopefully we do in terms of law enforcement being trained to take things more seriously sooner um, and that, that kind of safety planning. But in terms of what's the magic word that's going to make sure that we're safe or make this person be accountable and all those kind of things, it, I feel so helpless sometimes when I see all the things that, you know, that, that victims go through, you know, trying to get justice, trying to get attention, trying to be safe and those kinds of things. And it is totally not fair. 
that the, the, the onus is on that. You know, when you talk, I think when we talk about empowering people, um, I think a lot of times for, for, for survivors, it's kind of been things like, um, you know, taking self-defense classes or, you know, having more cameras or, you know, I mean, I think those, again, those things that are burdensome to one per, you know, to one person versus others, but they're things that are most likely to make a difference. Um, making those decisions about safety planning uh, and also about restraining orders and really looking at the research and what does it say? Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to worry about going to court um, and do that? Should we get should we get, get off social media? You know, should we get a new phone? Should we get a new computer? Sometimes we have to do that. It's expensive. It's, it's a pain, you know. We, we get rid of a computer and then all of a sudden we figure out that he's breached or she's breached another computer. So, you know, again, those are things that are just, they're, they're really unfair in the scheme of things. But if we look at, okay, I am, I am in charge of, I, I am going to protect my life. I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to do what it takes. And so in addition to talking to law enforcement, talking to prosecutors, whatever we need to do and figuring out the legal avenues that are best for us, we also really have to take charge of our safety and not let anybody, you know, reassure us. I mean, I, I'm sure you've come across it. I mean, I've just seen horrible story. I came across one recently over in the UK where this person literally had looked her up 40,000 times on Google, you know, and it's just, it's just maddening. And, you know, and, and, and then she goes to get help and then it's not, you know, nothing happens or it's not respected. And then, and, and sometimes people, victims do everything right. You know, that's the, that's the scary thing, you know, is we always want to look to the victim and kind of go, well, if you just done this or just said this or, or whatever, and, and we want to do all the things that are helpful, but sometimes we know situations where they do everything right. They, you know, there, I read a really tragic case recently where this woman from the very beginning was taken complete control as much as possible about her safety. And she was becoming this squeaky wheel. She wasn't just going to the police once. She was going several times and documenting and going to the courts and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and there was still a tragic outcome. So I think we have to look at what we can do and take as much control as we can. And things are getting so much better. Let me not be the grim reaper of, um, you know, of victim safety because we have seen a tremendous amount of improvement and, you know, a lot more training, a lot more awareness of risk factors in terms of stalking and, and risk factors in terms of, if, for stalkers in terms of ones who are uh, more, most likely to kill somebody. You know, so we know, for example, that the most dangerous stalker is, um, the stalker who's rejected and been in a relationship where there was already domestic violence. Um, so, you know, we're learning a lot, we're helping a lot, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And it is frustrating because we have these competing laws and these competing rights about freedom of speech. And what do you do if the person hasn't actually done anything? And so it's, it's, it's very complicated. And as far as social media goes, as you brought up there and silent stalking and Google and searching, it becomes increasingly more difficult sometimes to know that you're being stalked in some ways in this era of, um, you know, social media and the internet because a lot of people are easily found and a lot of people have to be in on LinkedIn for their job things along those lines where 
it's hard to escape that if I have a business, if I'm an entrepreneur, I have to have a website and, you know, it's easy to get information to know where someone works. They can ask questions to the assistant who might pick up the phone saying, oh, I'm looking for that person, that person, oh, they left, they left to go where, where do they go? So you have these, all of these things happening where you might not know that these things are are going on. So how can someone protect themselves as best they can uh, online uh, with still, I guess, being able to live their life as far as a lot of people's work has gone through there? And I think that, you know, we all have to figure out how much we want to expose of ourselves and our families online. And so certainly it makes sense from a privacy standpoint, from a safety standpoint, to make sure we're using privacy settings, that we're not friending people, that we don't know who they are. Um, it's not a bad idea sometimes to Google ourselves and to see what kind of comes up um, because people have found all kinds of things, people making fake profiles under their names and those kind of things. So take those kind of basic safety precautions. Um, you know, you, one of the things that you hear over and over again, I hear is trust your gut, trust your gut, trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, um, trust it. And so you're right. If you have no idea somebody's talking to you, then you take the, you know, the safety precautions as much as you can. Um, and then you obviously we want to be as observant of our environment as we can. And then again, if we start having an inkling that there's a problem or we know there's a problem, then we were, I talked earlier about kind of marshalling that team of support, and that might mean making sure everybody in the building, including the receptionist, including the person at the gym, including whoever it is, knows about your problem, knows what your stalker looks like, you know, varying our routines and doing those kind of things, knowing where you can go, um, you know, whether it's a domestic violence shelter or something like that, having a safety plan in place, thinking about, okay, what am I worried is going to happen? It's a big question, I think, for a victim. What What am I worried about? What is the worst case scenario? Why am I worried about that? Okay, if this person was going to do A, B, and C, how could I prevent that? How could I best protect myself? Um, and then, you know, like I said, the kind of the general precautions about, you know, um, online being sure that you're in privacy settings and, you know, again, not be fr- not friendly. You know, sometimes people have to get a new computer. You know, I know there's, I have a, a friend of mine who's a, a safety advocate and you know she talked she tells all people that are suspect they've been stalked or there's in a domestic violence relationship assume that your computer has been compromised assume that your phone has been compromised you know and get a new phone if you can you know um, get a new computer if you can so get a new phone number get a new phone there's as interesting as i've had a lot of questions about that and i'm sure you have as well actually um there's a lot of a little bit of controversy about that in the sense that you know getting a new phone number. How long is it going to be before this person finds this new phone number? So um, there's a really great book. I'm sure you've heard of it called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. And one of the things he recommends, which I do think really makes more sense, because his whole thing is he really doesn't recommend that. So what he will say is, okay, keep your phone number that you have, and now get another phone number. And you are going to give out this new phone number only to people that you know, that you trust, and that they can do that. But you are going to keep your old phone number, and you're going to have a recording or whatever on that phone. And the recording needs to be from somebody who is not of the same sex that you date because you don't want the stalker hearing this, you know, if you're 
heterosexual and you're a woman, you don't want hearing a strange male, which is then going to maybe send this person off into who is this person who's answering the phone, have a voice that's not yours because you don't want them calling also a hundred times to listen to your voice, have some kind of recording with a, you know, if you're, again, if you're a woman, you're heterosexual, a female friend records this and you just continue to give out your new number to people that you want to talk to and you listen. And eventually what's going to happen is the only person who's calling that number is going to be your stalker. And not only um, does this person not know that you're no longer listening to that, but it also gives you a really nice electronic record of this person's phone calls. So I wrote something down here, which was No Visible Bruises, which is a fantastic book by, uh, I think it's Rachel Louise Snyder. And in it, you know, within her research, the research shows that around after nine and a half months or 10 months, um, a de- someone who's a, in the domestic violence world, the obsession with the other person at that 10 month mark will start to fade. And I think they recommended within the book of like, if you're going to keep someone incarcerated in a way, make sure you get it up until this mark, because that's for some reason, psychologically that happens. Is it something like that identical or, or something similar to that with stalking where at a certain point that idea of that person will dissipate or is stalking a completely different thing that they have to reobsess themselves with something else? Well, there's certainly an overlap, obviously, between domestic violence and stalking, which you've already touched on. I think stalking is a little bit of a different animal in that there are so many different motives and types of stalkers. So you see statistics like the average stalking lasts, you know, 1.8 years to 2.2 years. So there's kind of this range of how long, which is horrifying to think about. Um, but that seems to be, but then of course, within that, we're talking about the average here, right? So then you can find people who were stalked for 15 years or 20 years, and then you can find people who it went on for a few weeks and then went away. So it's so difficult, I think, to predict. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen cases. There was the case um, a few months ago where there was a therapist in LA um, who had this ex-boyfriend who which and who had stalked her or, or there'd been a bad breakup and he went away for a couple of years and just happened to see her at this fundraiser and it just started the whole thing over again um I, you know i had another stalking incident recently where uh, again this guy was kind of i guess more like an incompetent stalker in a way he had, they met in co- they were in a class in college i can't even say they met they were in a class in college and she was aware she was an 18 year old or you know freshman she was kind of aware this guy was kind of following her around and he was like she'd see him in the bushes he wasn't approaching her though and it kind of made her uncomfortable but she just kind of ignored it he didn't kind of come up and a couple times she got some anonymous uh, flowers or anonymous messages. And this went on for a couple of years, never again, really actually approached her. She suspected that it was him, but she just kind of put it out of her mind because he wasn't doing anything else. And then somehow like 10 years later, this guy pops up again. Um, he kind of ran, ran across her in this random kind of thing. So I think it's so much more difficult when you're talking about stalking and the potential reasons and different kinds of stalkers. And then you have, you know, like the, um, the celebrity stalkers who sometimes are arrested seven times, eight times, nine times. And you know, I think that Miss um, Ray spent at least 34 months between a hospital, psychiatric hospital and 
prison. And when you're talking about the intimacy-seeking stalker, which includes the kind of delusional erotomania, you know, these are individuals, unfortunately, who don't respond to restraining orders. They don't respond to arrest because there's this delusion. And the delusion is what the delusion is. We are in this relationship. You know, I know it. You should know it. You know, so I'm not doing anything wrong. So I think it's so much more difficult in a way to predict that if I just hold out for this long, you know, if I hold out for that 10 months. Now, I will tell you that a lot of times um, law enforcement, when they're talking with stalkers, especially really skilled and trained ones, will work very hard to gather all the evidence of all the incidences. Because a lot of times you can have multiple crimes that are committed. So it's not just stalking, it's vandalism. Or it's, you know, whatever, invasion of privacy or trespassing or those kinds of things. And they're able to kind of bundle, in a way, these different crimes together, which can help that person stay behind bars longer. And I think that is the goal, you know, to the longer amount of time there's that separation. You know, the risk, of course, is this person's going to now start stalking somebody else. But I think the length of time is probably helpful for sure. And a last thing before we leave, how do I know if I am being stalked? Well, again, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, trusting your gut, first of all. If something is uncomfortable to you, it's important to investigate that and not dismiss it. Um, Sometimes friends and family, unfortunately, will contribute to this because we're talking to somebody and say, hope this guy won't leave me alone. Oh, well, he's sad that you broke up or she's sad that you broke up or just ignore it or whatever. And, you know, ignoring it's not a bad thing at the beginning, certainly, because we don't want to engage at all. So trusting your gut is number one. And then the other thing is, you know, what is, why are you wondering about this? What are you observing? So if it's just a feeling, pay attention to it. But then the question becomes, why am I getting this feeling? Am I getting this feeling because I just broke up with somebody? It's been an ugly breakup. Am I getting this feeling because I've seen the same person following me or I've seen the same person at the same store, you know, same store or coffee shop over and over again? So it becomes paying attention, starting to make notes, and then investigating that. Um, You know, unfortunately, I mean, and again, if you're really concerned about it and you can afford it, you can obviously always get a private investigator to help you figure that out. The other thing that I encourage everybody, there are tremendous resources available. Pick up the phone. Call a stalking hotline. You know, tell them, this is what I'm concerned about. I'm just kind of getting this weird feeling, and this is why. So get that team of support around you, people that are educated, and also get people that you care about to help you monitor the situation or whatever. But the thing is, don't admiss, don't dismiss that red that those red flags. And are there any uh, podcasts or resources online that you would suggest people go to listen to if they want to listen uh, more about stalking? Or you know, we have a lot of true crime fans. Uh, that listen to the show. So as far as uh, true crime stalking uh, podcasts as well. I, I, I do. Uh, well, there's a victim resource network, which is somebody who's looking, you know, if you, if you have some of the questions we're talking about, am I being stalked? What do I do in this situation? My ex-boyfriend or girlfriend won't leave me alone. Then that's the time to pick up and say, I need to find an expert in stalking a victim's advocate to help me through this. Do not go it alone. Think of, again, I keep saying, army of support. 
You need an army of support. In terms of a good podcast, um, there's a podcast called Strictly Stalking. And it's a really good, it's a really good podcast. It's done by a man named Jake Deptula. And I think Jamie Beebe is his co-host. And that is, it's just what it sounds like. It's strictly stalking. And one of the things that's amazing about this podcast is the story after story of survivors and people who've gone through this. And you get a sense of what's worked for them. You get a sense of the psychological trauma people go through and how they recover from that. Um, And you get also a sense of just the breadth of stalking, you know, because we do think of it and the most common is this kind of, you know, rejected lover, ex who does this, but there are other forms of stalking as well. And it's really important to realize that number one, nobody deserves to be stalked. Nobody has asked to be stalked. Nobody has done anything to provoke that stalking. And it really helps you kind of see that what you're going through, so many other people have gone through and survived it. And before we leave, uh, let everyone know what you're up to and where they can reach you. Well, I have a website that's got tons of articles on it. Um, It's called drjoneyjohnston.com. Pretty easy. I write a blog for psychology today called The Human Equation, which also has a ton of um, of articles and those kinds of things. And then I have a YouTube channel called Unmasking a Murderer, where we cover a true story, um, true crime story, and then use that as a launching pad to talk about psychology um, and education about various topics related to safety and crime and the criminal mind and those kinds of things. And all of these things will be in our show notes. And once again, thank you so much, Dr. Joni Johnston, for being a guest with us today. I loved it. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button, read all of our instructions, and either fill out our guest form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. So if you press the support group button at the top of the page, you will find that we have our very own forum boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We have ad-free episodes and we also have episodes that never made it to air. And if you really just want to support our show by, by joining our support group, it supports the show. So please do do that for us. And also, if you want to leave reviews for us on uh, Apple or wherever you can do a review, that also helps out the show a lot. And for the people who um, listen to the show but don't subscribe to our show, please subscribe to our show. It helps us out as well. And last thing, for people that need even more support, please do go to our friends at DomesticShelters.org. They can help connect you with resources, free articles, with shelters. It's a great free resource. They're friends of the show, so please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And that is it for today. So for myself and Dr. Joni Johnston, we hope you have a good night.